This is the 966, the podcast that focuses on all things Saudi Arabia from the two guys who produce the most widely read daily newsletter on the kingdom. This week, we'll be talking about the World's Fair in 2030, archaeological excavation in Saudi Arabia, and the potential for manufacturing cars in the kingdom. And as always, before we get started this week, a special shukran to all those who have followed us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for following us if you already have. If you haven't, Hit the follow button, helps us a lot. Um, and another thank you, another shukran to those who have reached out to us directly with comments, feedbacks, feedback, ideas, just to say hello. You can email us at 966podcast at gmail.com. Send us a tweet at 966podcasts, another place to follow us. Or if you have any negative feedback, as always, email Richard directly. Um, yeah. For those of you who are new or just starting to follow us, we did an introduction to the podcast, what we're doing um, with this podcast. It's available on our website, which is 966.transistor.fm. Richard, let's get to it. What's your one big thing this week? I'm going to bury the lead on this. So we'll, we'll, I'll announce the one big thing, you know, three quarters of the way through this little, uh, little bit. A slow reveal. I like it. <laughs> the anticipation is growing. <laughs> Um, uh, so Saudi Arabia clocked its 14th straight month of non-oil private sector growth in October, and the non-oil private sector's output also grew at the fastest rate since the end of 2017. Consulting firm PwC said Wednesday in its latest Middle East economy watch that, quote, non-oil growth is a pivotal driver of this recovery. Sectors such as financial services have emerged from the pandemic in a position of strength. When looking at Saudi Arabia, its large pool of domestic demand and the government's commitment to the giga projects is central to spurring economic recovery. Uh, it adds the lifting of mobility restrictions, resumption of, resumption of travel and successful vaccination campaigns uh, in Saudi have also been a key to the current positive outlook. The finance ministry said it expects the economy to expand 7.5% next year, which is the biggest surge in a decade. Uh, and that would be particularly strong, a particularly strong bounce back after gross domestic product contract contracted more than 4% in 2020 and grew an estimated 2.6% this year. So here is the lead. Despite this, the next two years projected spending, 22, uh, 2022 and 2023, is expected to be the same as planned. So that's about at about 955 billion rials, which is about $256 billion. Um, and meanwhile, this year's budget deficit is expected to narrow to about $23 billion or 2.7% uh, of GDP, which is significantly lower than the ministry's initial target of, of $38 billion. So despite increased oil revenues and a positive economic outlook, Saudi Arabia intends to keep spending restrained with plans to actually cut spending for the next, years before, the next two years before increasing it slightly in 2024. Monica Malik, chief economist at Abu Dhabi Commercial Bank, said sticking to earlier plans for 2022 and 2023 indicates an ongoing focus on fiscal consolidation. And then I have a note here, fiscal discipline, exclamation point. This is, uh, this is uh, admirable, sticking to a plan that typically when there's a bump in oil revenues, Saudi uh, you know, has gotten a little more lax in its spending and, and you know, just the discipline erodes. And uh, this was very encouraging. And this is something that people are seeing in Saudi in terms of its, its fiscal management, that is a change. They're showing discipline 
and uh, it's it's a it's a, a a big thing. My one big thing this week. Yeah, I'm not sure many people would use if you were doing a word association exercise um, with Saudi Arabia fiscal discipline as um, the first thing that comes up in mind. But um, I think also what's interesting in in this and stuff that we're seeing coming out now is just how much the non-oil sector, as you mentioned, is growing. And that's the name of the game for Vision 2030 uh, to try to get, I mean, even though oil prices are high, to try to get the non-oil sector humming so that if, oil's, if oil goes up, oil goes down, Saudi's, Saudi Arabia's economy keeps on humming. And, it, and it's humming right now. I mean, you said, what, 7.5% growth yeah, that's year. a that's a big number. I, I, and that's even higher than I expected. Yeah, you're spot on about the private sector because at some point they're trying to invest enough, uh, change regulatory environment enough, induce activity so it tips over and there's a tipping point where the private sector really picks up. And as you say, that's fundamental. That's I mean, you know, the, the government can only employ so many Saudis. Uh, you know, the private sector's got to be the one to pick up the slack if they're going to uh, meet their marks for 20, Vision 2030. And I also should add, um, uh, you know, we're experiencing, I think the Saudis know we're experiencing a moment in the oil market. Um, this little window here where it's bumped up to 85 is not going to last. You've got, you've got reduced production in 2020, uh, you know, followed up by in, increased consumption and uh, economic activity this year. You've got shale oil sitting it out on the side right now, uh, but they'll be back and they'll be back. I mean, the Saudis understand, I think, that that the shale oil, U.S. shale oil sets the ceiling. Saudis can manage the floor in terms of oil prices. So they're smart to be fiscally conservative because this moment's not going to last. My one big thing uh, that's going to be tough to top because the economy is the biggest thing for Vision 2030. <laughs> um, my one big thing is Turkey Al Sheikh. Turkey Al Sheikh is one of Saudi Arabia's most famous names in the government. He's the most plugged in guy in the entertainment sector, bar none. Um, he's chairman of the General Entertainment Authority, advisor to the Royal Court, uh, in charge of all these really ambitious entertainment offerings in Saudi Arabia. So all the big name entertainers, entertainers that are coming into the kingdom, sports stars, EDM DJs, classical composers, opera singers, they all deal with Al Sheikh. Uh, the guy's everywhere. And if you... Uh, you, I, I guess you kind of have to say he's doing a good job creating an industry out of nothing. I mean, five years ago, if you look at all that's going on now to think about, you know, a Riyadh season uh, is unthinkable. Um, of, of course, that's not all. He owns a Spanish soccer team, UD Almeria <laughs> FC in Spain, which um, I believe he bought for $20 million. I could have that figure wrong. If if I do, just send us an email. Um, but it's it's not it. Uh, he's obviously one of the busiest people in the world, if not in Saudi Arabia or top 10, um, we can add something else to his slate. Al Sheikh's, according to Al Sheikh's Instagram, he's written a horror film. The cello is coming out in 2022 and it stars Academy Award winner, Jeremy Irons, who was in my opinion at his best in Die Hard with a Vengeance um, as the <laughs> nemesis. Um, Al Sheikh shared the film's poster in a Twitter post with the caption 2022. He wrote the script for the film, which is based on one of his novels. Um, I just wanted to share this mostly to talk a little bit about about Al Sheikh, who's just one of the most interesting guys. Um, I hope we get to bring him on to the 966 one day. Um, but if we do, we'll need to keep him away from any nearby TVs uh, just you know, for their security. <laughs> Um, it's just a really interesting guy. He's doing a lot and it's just crazy that he found time to write a script for a horror movie. 
And I guess they, they, they're close. They've filmed it on site in Saudi and the Czech Republic. I didn't know this. I, I, I had seen the cello. I'd seen reports of the cello. I didn't know Ahmed Sheikh had, uh, had written it. Um, it's amazing. He impressive. found time. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah. it's impressive. Yeah. He's an, he is an interesting guy and he's, you know, it's gotta be exciting to be him because you're, you, you're, you he clearly has big ideas, big aspirations, and he has the means and the, and the influence behind him to go pursue these things. And it, you know, that's like you said, all the things that are going on, he's right at the heart of it. Moving on to topic one, Saudi Arabia wants to host the World's Fair in 2030. Uh, Riyadh has submitted a formal request to host Expo 2030 under the theme, quote, the era of change leading the planet to a foresighted tomorrow. This year, Expo 2020, which was delayed due to the coronavirus pandemic, is ongoing and is being hosted in neighboring Dubai. Richard, I wanted to discuss this because I think this would be a huge deal for the kingdom if it happened. The timing would be interesting with Vision 2030 matriculating in that same year. Dubai is right in the thick of it right now, and these things don't mean quite what they used to mean like at the turn of the last century where you were demonstrating a new light bulb, but it, it really is sort of like all the ideas of the world <laughs> coming into one city for a piece of time. Um, I remember Dubai advertising its Expo 2020 in 2013 when we were there and it was advertisements for it were everywhere. Um, this is sort of a, I mean, Richard, I think this is sort of a big deal. Talk a little bit about, um, if you would, sort of this and, you know, their desire to host the World Cup in 2030. I mean, it, it sounds sort of like they're setting the, you know, setting a big coming out party for the, end of Vision 2030. Well, Saudi Arabia, kudos to them. They're throwing their hat into every ring. And uh, you're right, uh, that 2030 benchmark is, you know, has meaning in Saudi Arabia. And, and these would be tremendous showcases. I, I think they're looking across, you know, just they're looking uh, east to Dubai. And uh, in that Expo 2020 Dubai, they had 2.3 million, 2.35 million visits during the first month. And it's a six month global event. Wow. So I mean, so so they they their goal is fourteen plus million visits, and uh, you've got one hundred ninety two countries participating in that expo. Uh, apparently, you know the the range of visitors in terms of where they're coming from is enormous. Uh, uh, just in the first month, one hundred eighty five nationalities visited the Dubai Expo. So that's one month with five to go. Um, so. In certain in terms of Saudi Arabia trying to showcase not only you know the progress it's made and where it is at 2030, but also underpinning you know their tourism goals, this would be gargantuan, uh, and it'd be a big hit. Now I should add, by the way, that I guess the Saudi pavilion at that Dubai Expo was really popular. It's had 500,000 visitors since October 1st. Um, so and the pictures I've seen of them are pretty impressive. Um, it's, this is I don't I don't see them winning this. Uh, they sort of got got their bid in on Friday just under the wire. Um, they're competing against uh, Rome, Moscow, uh, Odessa, and Ukraine, and Busan, and, and South Korea. Uh, I you know it's interesting that they would get the bid in so late. Uh, you, you don't know if maybe they were getting their their P's and Q's in order. Maybe they got. Uh, an indication that the bids, existing bids, aren't that strong, and they'd have a run at it. Um, the, in terms of the cycle of world ex go expos, 
World Expos, which they run every five years. I guess 2010 was Shanghai, 2015 Milan, 2020 Dubai, 2025 Osaka. It seems to me it's going to come back to Europe. Uh, it would be interesting to have two in the Gulf in the, in the span of a decade. So uh, I think it'd be great if Saudi got it. I, you know, they have to, and this also is in keeping with some of their larger goals. I mean, we have to remember that Dubai airport is the busiest airport in the world for international travelers. So they already have this, this traffic in place. Saudi doesn't have that. Obviously, if they had a, 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 an expo, that a world expo, you'd get more of that. But it's again, it's like so many things with Saudi, it's aspirational. I think it'd be really cool if they got it. I'd be surprised if they did. But again, I'm not on the inside of the, the bid process. Well, and Alfala mentioned this week that they, um, and we're going to get to this later, so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but he mentioned this week that they were, and, and this has been echoed through, throughout the last year, that they were going to invest heavily in the Riyadh airport, transforming right. it to probably more compete with Dubai. But um, just interesting, the Expo is the third largest global event after the Olympics and the World Cup. So, I mean, it is a huge deal. Yeah. Um, and it's six months? I didn't know it. It's six months long. I didn't know that either. That's that's a long that's a long run. Um, and, and you mentioned the uh, the World Cup. Um, they're they're thinking about a co-bid with Egypt in the same year. I think we talked about that on the nine six six, one of the first episodes. Very interesting. Archaeologists, topic two. Archaeologists in Saudi Arabia uh, excavating five sites near Al Ula for remnants of ancient kingdoms. Indiana Jones in Saudi Arabia. A team of French and Saudi archaeologists have begun work on excavating near Al Ula. Uh, in hopes of dif- discovering the remnants of the ancient and long forgotten kingdoms of, and I'm going to botch it, Dadan and Lehan. Um, <laughs> this is according to a Reuters report. Um, the site may contain important artifacts and other objects belonging to the Dadanite and Lehanite civilizations, which were important regional powers that flourished 2000 years ago. Um, Richard, we've talked a lot about tourism and we talked at length about it last week. Al Ula is known for the visually stunning tombs of. Madan Saleh, uh, which is also 2000 year old, uh, 2000 years old. That was carved into the rocks by the Nabataeans. Saudi Arabia is Richard really hot right now for archeology span in the world. They, um, yes, they are. And it, it's a lot of fun to watch. So the Saudis, uh, in 2019 began forging close links with UNESCO. And I guess they were elected to the executive board. They have committed 25 million to UNESCO's heritage preservation initiatives um, and just got their sixth HEMA, uh, just got their sixth UNESCO site, designated UNESCO site in Saudi, I think this June. Uh, And another rock art collection, uh, concentration of rock art in the Southwest. just extraordinary. And I would want to recommend, I sent it over to you this morning, that link to the Arab News uh, deep dive. Did you see that? That was fascinating. That was awesome. That was a really impressive uh, piece. So we'll, this will, we'll get this up on the screen somewhere, how this is. This was this is a really good rundown by the Arab News. It's deep dive with, with great visuals and good explanation of the UNESCO uh, heritage sites in Saudi Arabia. All of them, essentially, I mean, Jeddah, uh, but all of them uh, pre-Islamic, which I, I think is, is a very interesting approach and something that Saudi Arabia, as we've talked about on this this podcast before, is open to now. Um, you've got uh, Hijra, Alula, uh, which is part of the Nabataean 
as you said, the Navatiban civilization 2,000 years ago, and and those you know the amazing uh, structures carved into rock. You've got the Al Asa um, oasis. Uh, you've got uh, Doria. Uh, you've got um, Jeddah, old old city, uh, and another one, another rock art. The recent one, um, rock art. Uh, is escaping me. The, I've forgotten the name of it. Uh, but these things are extraordinary. And also another interesting thing is, is as they get into this archaeology, um, there's uh, they're finding uh, that Saudi, you know, the, the climate change. So, you know, what Saudi Arabia looked like. So, for example, 500,000 years ago, uh, Saudi Arabia was lush terrain with lakes and valleys. And, um, and, you know, for for they recently found a, an eighty five thousand year old finger bone found in one of these old lakes. Uh, it, you know, it's it was a crossroads. It's a fascinating place. There's a lot of really archeo- interesting archaeological uh, sites there, and that's one of the things about the, that, that Arab news uh, deep dive was on the rock art. They um, you have a picture of the rock art, you know, but experts you have shapes and, and actually have drawn out what the actual original art was portraying. And it's especially interesting. So uh, this is, again, was a, a very purposeful uh, direction chosen by Saudi Arabia to, to amplify its archaeological sites, not only for historical reasons uh, and scientific reasons, but in support of its, its tourism industry. And you can see results. It's, it's, it's really impressive, some of the things that are on site in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and some things just don't change. Like Saudi Arabia has recently, I mean, as of the last few years, started to position itself on the global stage as an intersection between East and West. Um, and, and they're sort of doing that as part of a tourism push. But, you know, the reality is that they are, you know, in between the East and the West. And that's always been true. And, and a lot of these um, places that they're excavating and all, a lot of these historic sites actually date back to the frankincense trade. Um, so it, it's sort of interesting to see that um, comparison because like they're still in the middle of it now. I mean, when they talked about Neom and they talked about building truly a gateway to the East and West and, and all of those things that they're building there. I mean, that's literally the opposite of, you know, an archaeological dig in the middle of the desert. It's a modern city. And it's just, you know, certain things never change. It's cool for Saudi Arabia to recognize that both in what they're doing now and also in allowing in a lot of these um, archaeologists, um, the French, U.S. There are a lot of Saudi archaeologists as well to uncover some of these sites. Just really cool what's going on there. Um, and it's, it was sort of news to us this week because um, a lot of the stuff they've been doing around Al-Ula is based on tourism, building up tourist um, sites, building, planning hotels and places for you to stay when you come visit Al-Ula. And so reading that on Monday and the report was from Reuters, we'll also share that with us, with our listeners on the website and um, on YouTube. Um, but it's it's just fascinating because it's, it sort of shows that, um, you know, Saudi Arabia is, is taking its heritage seriously. When Richard, when we visited um, Daria in Riyadh just a few years ago, and they were sort of putting the finishing touches on the historic part of the renovation, they kept, kept virtually everything exactly as it was, which was really cool to see. It felt like you were walking back into time. It was amazing. That was really impressive. Um, that uh, the sixth site is Hyle. It's up northeast of uh, yeah. of uh, Riyadh, which is uh, more rock art. 
Um, yes, to Rio was really impressive. Uh, check it out if you go to next time you go to Riyadh, visit the old city in Daria. It's, it's amazing. Okay, let's move on to topic three. Can Saudi Arabia become a home for car makers? Um, the kingdom is in talks with several car makers about manufacturing within the kingdom's borders, according to Khalid Al Fala, who's Saudi Arabia's minister of investment. Al Fala said, quote, a car manufacturer will be announced before year end, and following that, there will be another one or two car manufacturers, and they will be cars of the future, he said. Of course, one's first thought turns to Lucid Motors, the Tesla rival that we've talked about a lot on this podcast. But this is just one piece of a plan to attack, attract FDI into the kingdom, which Alfala said was going well. Uh, according to Alfala, in the first half of 2021, the kingdom has already exceeded FDI, FDI targets for this year. Uh, Richard, can Saudi Arabia become a, a home for car makers? That's a good question. They really want to. They, they This has been... Um a primary goal for a long time. In 2010, they introduced uh, Gazal One, which was really the brainchild of some researchers in, in King Saud University. Um, and you like this, it was designed to be built on a uh, 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 Mercedes uh, G-Wagon frame. That's, that is awesome. <laughs> did, did, so, did they end up building that? No. Oh, uh, as far as I know, they didn't end up building it. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why they're interested. So, so this sector comes under the National Industrial Development and Logistics Program, which is, which is tasked underneath the Vision 2030 to develop the manufacturing sector. And they look, they're looking primarily at, at industry, mining, uh, energy, and logistics. Developing an automaking ecosystem has always been of great interest for, for lots of reasons. And the, the, there's three that they point to. One is, is there's, a, there's a significant market in Saudi Arabia for vehicles. Uh, this year, they'll sell uh, four, close to 400,000 vehicles, actually 2020. Uh, 2019, it was more like 460,000. But they, the car sales grow with about 9% annually. I mean, uh, the, actually, 2020 was a blip. You've got Saudi Arabia's that right in the middle of a GCC market, which is a hundred million, I mean, I mean, uh, uh, one million cars purchased annually. And then if you go a little farther afield, you've got the MENA market, which is 400 million, you know, consumers. So, so they look at it and go, we have a market here, uh, which is significant and we have access to it because certainly within the GCC, there's not a lot, there's not trade barriers to it. So two, uh, the auto industry is very labor intensive. Uh, it has a significant multiplier effect in terms of downstream sectors. So, you know, you, you, you put in an assembly line, you have to deal with contractors and, and suppliers that are, you know, metals, plastic, and chemicals. So it's a great jobs creator. Uh, and, and they have, Savic has already has some experience. It's worked with uh, Volkswagen and Hyundai and Mitsubishi in terms of, of chemicals and plastics that are, are uh part of a auto manufacturing supply chain. Saudi Arabia already has some, some capability in terms of spare parts because it has so many vehicles. So, I mean, you've got uh, some ecosystem there for replacement parts like radiators, batteries, and these sorts of things. So it's one, there's a market. Two, it's a, it's a really good industry for creating jobs. Uh, and three, uh, Saudis spend a lot of money on cars. Uh, seven to eight percent of their total imports, imports worth around eight billion dollars, are spent on vehicles. These are coming from you know 
these are imported. So, and I think South Korea has about a quarter of that. The U.S. has a little less than a quarter. Japan has uh, not quite 20%. Um, it's the fifth largest export market for U.S. passenger vehicles and late trucks, and it's the largest in the Middle East. So, so you've got these three things. You've got a market, you've got uh, an industry that would create jobs for your citizens, and if you could reduce these uh, imports, it would help your balance, your trade balance. So a lot of good things. The other, the other interesting thing is uh, Saudi Arabia is a top 20 country in the world in terms of, of automobile purchase the demand. It's the only one of that 20 without local or regional production facilities. So Saudi Arabia looks at this and goes, wow, there's an opportunity. Now, why hasn't happened? Let me go back. They, they, and and part of the, um, so in Saudi Arabia has already allocated land for a vehicle assembly plan. This was done in April 29. There is a, you know, a Saudi national automobile, automobile manufacturing company, and it's in, in uh, partnership with the South Korean company, Sanyong. And, you know, they, they, you know, they think they can maintain, you know, manage a production volume of somewhere between 100 and 150,000 vehicles by 2026. So the want is there. The reason is there. What are the obstacles? Um, I mentioned the Gazelle in 2010. Uh, they uh, asked Toyota to do a feasibility study in 2017, which they did. Um, Toyota came back and said, look, uh, you know, the huge deal is labor competitiveness. Um, so we have to, we have to understand that if we're, we're going to put in a, a manufacturing plant here, you know, it's got to compete with the, the efficiency and the labor and the skills elsewhere, you know, and they have plants all over the world. So they said, you know, high labor costs, small domestic market and lack of local supplies. Uh, Saudis also ran this sort of ran this route with Tata and Nissan, neither of which came to anything. So they've got to they've got to figure out how to overcome this obstacle. Maybe and one of the things the Toyota feasibility study said, look, you know, one way to do this happen is the incentives have to be just on you know ridiculously high, you know, close to fifty percent for us to make it for it to be feasible financially and. And maybe that's what the Saudis do. And this is, this is, uh, you know, it'd be a lost leader in order to create jobs and and to bring this technology into the into the country. Uh, you bring up an interesting. I should add, by the way, that that Saudi does have some production in terms of trucks. Uh, Isuzu and Volvo have a presence, and they've been there for a while. But those are mostly assembly, so local contents under fifty percent, well under fifty percent. So it's not really a you know a traditional manufacturing process like they or ecosystem like they'd want to create. Um, one thing, and you sort of alluded to it, and when you quoted Khaled Al Fala, is maybe they can bypass an internal combustion engine uh, model entirely and go straight to EVs. One of the advantages of being in a, a, an emerging market in a developing country is, is uh, you may not have legacy systems that you have to either incorporate or revise or revamp or just abandon. 
so you know some of these fourth industrial revolution uh, technologies that you know, coming to Saudi Arabia where they have nothing to that is going to replace, so you can adopt them whole, wholly and quickly. So maybe maybe you know what Khalid Al-Fala was alluding to is we're going to go straight to an EV plant, an EV manufacturing auto, auto electric vehicle manufacturing you know process, which would be fascinating, and would be would be. Uh, That'd be really intriguing, but I guess all that to say is Saudi Arabia has has recognized this as a huge opportunity to increase its industrial base and create jobs and transfer technology and move it into a significant ecosystem uh, that would provide all sorts of trade advantages. Uh, but they haven't been able to do it, uh, and part of that is you know they've got it's like a lot of things that, with Saudi Arabia in terms of what they want to do. They can move quickly on a number of things. One thing they can't move quickly on is educating a generation of young Saudis that are ready to do take on these jobs. And you know, education obviously underpins so many things you want to do economically. And there, you know, that's what's missing when a Toyota or a Tata or a Nissan looks at this. All right, who are we going to hire to to, to operate this efficiently and and um, and you know, make money. You know, everybody wants to make money. So, I love, I love that he's talking about it. I love that it's come through. It's a big priority. Um, it would be awesome if they could make it happen. It would be really interesting if they just said, "Look, we're going to try this with EVs." But uh, as I said, this has been this has been a, uh, something they've been hunting for a long time. Maybe they'll catch it this time. We talk a lot about on this podcast about going beyond the headlines, going beyond the just the story at its face and diving deeper. And that answer, Richard, is why we're doing this podcast, because that was fascinating. I, <laughs> I didn't know almost everything that you said. And that's just that's incredible. You must have a team of writers over there and, and I'm not one of them. So but that no, was really I, good. And that's 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 what we're trying to do here. I mean, that's imagine if their first car that they are manufacturing at scale was an electric vehicle. I mean, that would, it's almost like kind of hard to imagine, but um, boy, that'd great be a answer. P, that'd be good PR. That'd be PR. By the way, I think I had you a G-Wagon. Yeah. As soon as you said G-Wagon, I was like, this is the answer. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that's, that's amazing. And, and um, I, I guess I, I was going to ask a follow-up question if I may, but, um, and, and maybe you don't know the answer to this, but um, I understand that Lucid is owned, a majority stake in Lucid is owned by the public investment fund. Um, Alfala yeah. said that, um, you know, Lucid might be the car that they end up manufacturing there, but it would be, be up to the board, um, of Lucid Motors Inc. Uh, doesn't, doesn't the PIF control the board or, I mean, I, I don't know if we know that, but it just seems like the PIF would be like, yeah, we're going to be doing this in next year because we now own more than 50% of the company. Do you, do you have any, uh, insight on that? I think they're the majority shareholder. Okay. Uh, but it's it's the same question, you know. As as you know, you have the you have the PIF whose responsibility is to get returns on investments, and uh, if putting a, a lucid plant in Saudi Arabia is not a smart investment choice, mm -hmm. then the responsible thing is to not do it. Uh, and this is the this is the challenge they run into. And this is as I said, this is why Tata, Nissan, and Toyota all go. They don't say no because they, these are important markets but they they draw up any number of obstacles as to why it's not economically in their interest and that's the whole point of this is you know Saudi Arabia wants to uh, you know uh, attract FDI and investment but these people it has to be done so these people make money 
Now, like I said, maybe maybe they just want to be a loss leader and just, you know, uh, incent the heck out of this and to have bring somebody in there and do it. But the, a, a better deal would be that you could do it uh, in a reasonably attractive structure that's also uh, attractive to the manufacturer, whoever wants to come in. But, you know, so again, that that dynamic with PIF as a major shareholder in Lucid, they on both sides of the coin. And and maybe they uh, maybe they decide that it's a, it's better for the country to to bring Lucid in and 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 just give them tremendous incentives and underwrite them at fifty percent, and then try and make money well in the future. Uh, maybe they decide you know that's not a good financial uh, it's not a responsibly financial thing to do in in terms of their PIF investment portfolio. Uh, hard to know. Like I said. Saudi Arabia has been sniffing around this for a long time, and they recognize how important it is. They haven't been able to make it happen. And Khalid Al-Fala, Khalid Al I think it's, you know, he's a compelling guy. Saudi Arabia's in a different place. Uh, maybe this is the time they get it done. Yeah, we talked a little bit earlier about um, word association, Saudi Arabia fiscal responsibility, maybe not so much, but Saudi Arabia G-Wagon is something that I think a lot of people might say. Uh, great answer, Richard. Great intel there. Let's wrap it up with that. Again, if you can follow us on uh, any anywhere you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, we have our, you can see our beautiful faces on YouTube. Um, if you want to watch either the full episode or in segments there, give us a follow there. We're building our audience. We're getting a ton of awesome feedback. Um, so keep that rolling. And Richard, thank you very much. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you, Lucian. Thank you.